Hi, this is Michael Buffer, and welcome to the Box Hard Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Mikey Garcia. It's the monster from the swamps, Regis Ruguru Program. Hey, what's up? This is King Carlos Molina, former IBF world champ. This is Michael, the bounty hunter, 2012 Olympian and your people's champ. This is Charlie Edwards, flyweight champion of the world. This is Fast Eddie Chambers, and you're listening to the Box Hard Podcast with my main man, Joey Coastman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 241 of the Box Hard Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Coastman. I'm joined this week by one of my best friends in the world, um, it goes a lot deeper than just boxing. It is, of course, the former heavyweight world title challenger, Mr. Eddie Chambers. Eddie, how are you? I'm good, my man. How are you feeling? Real good, man. Whenever I speak to you, I'm always feeling good. Um, like I say to the listeners, um, you know, the last few weeks, it has been a struggle trying to, you know, come up with topics and stuff like that. Again, um, if you've got any topics that you want to suggest for, for the forthcoming weeks of shows, send them in on Twitter at BoxRPodcast. Um, there will be another world champion on this show as the same as, as last week and, and, you know, a few weeks now during this lockdown. But... Yeah, we're kind of a bit flat on what we're going to discuss, so um, me and Eddie have thought of a segment. Eddie has been in boxing for for a long, long time. He's seen it all, he's done it all, he has a t-shirt, and um, he's got a lot of stories along the way. So we're going we're gonna to call this segment Eddie's Story Time or something along those lines. If you can think of something, by the way, again, we're open to suggestions. If you can think of something, um, what, what Eddie can call his little segment, his story time, Eddie's Corner, something like that, Fast Eddie's, I don't know, Fast Eddie's Lockdown Talk, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I like Lockdown Talk, man. That sounds kind of that sounds kind of cool, actually. Eddie's Lockdown Knockdown, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> lockdown, knockdown. I like. I really like that one. Yeah, Eddie's lockdown, knockdown. Yeah, I, I, we might have to use that. Yeah, one. I don't we know. Might have to use that one. But like I said, we're open to suggestions. And basically, me and Eddie. Well, not not really me. I'm going to just sit back, kick back, and listen. Eddie's Eddie's like I say, got tons and tons of stories. He's going to tell us some of the most interesting stories that he has to share. And um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. So let's get into that. And um, you know, we're going to hopefully do this. You know, many times during uh, you know the, the the upcoming weeks, while there's not much boxing news to discuss. So, Eddie, um, yeah, volume one here. Um, start start wherever you like. Perhaps start early on, towards the early part of your career, and you know we'll work our way up right to the to the uh, to the latest stuff. You know, obviously with the Furies, where things get real real interesting. Um, but yeah, what what interesting story have you got for us this week? Well, you know what is funny, man. You know fighters and we all talk about uh you know what people don't know there's a lot of talk obviously about fighters about what uh you know the lay fan would say about a fighter and oh i, I can't believe he got in there you know fat or, or blah, blah 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 and they just don't really see what's going on behind the scenes and see how much work it takes and how many things we have to really deal with through the course of a camp or just in just in general with everyday life on top of uh, uh boxing you know what i'm saying and and for us, you know, for me and my brother, Steve, it was pretty simple, was, even though it was hard and, and difficult. And we almost was like on lockdown mode like we are right now in in, in boxing with my, my, my father, because my, my dad was all about following the rules 100 percent and 
you know, for us, for us, a getaway, and I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but for us, a getaway was going to camp. Now we talk about going to camp. We talk about going, you know, like, 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 you know, when people say big bear, like you remember hearing, um, Ariola talk about Big Bear, like, uh, I really don't like Big Bear because it's like going away from everything. Well, for us, that was kind of almost like a vacation type thing for us because all we did when we're home, for the most part, was train. And we trained and trained and trained some more. And we were training three times a day, even before I got with the Furies. When I, you know, by the way, I wanted to mention, I was training three times a day then, but obviously the training wasn't in t- as, as intense. It was intense, but it wasn't as intense as what I what I dealt with there. But um, I remember one particular scenario when and even though we liked sometimes going away to camps, not all camps were created equal to like like uh, one of the first camps I went to was uh, Monty Barrett. I love Monty Barrett. That's one of my one of my favorite guys in boxing, to be honest. And and he's always been real cool, real straightforward. You know, he, he taught us some things about the sport, let us know what to really uh, what to look for as far as business on, you know, some of the parts of the business. But, you know, also with the with the sport itself. And I learned a lot from him. But I remember the first camp we went to and Malik wasn't at this one. Joe, I just want to let you know, because I think I got it confused when we were talking a little bit before about this story. Mm-hmm. Um, we were we were to go up to work with Monty, and this was like kind of spur of the moment. We, I think we were supposed to go up for two weeks, I think, was the uh, initial idea. And I think that's what we end up doing. And for us, you know, we're used to being able to, you know, we like me and my brother would literally take our system. Uh, and I think at the time it was like, what, a PS2 or something. And we made sure that we have our system with us because that's what we do. We watch movies and play video games. That's all we really had. We try to talk to girls every now and again. But, you know, that that pretty, pretty much was kind of tough because we wasn't really allowed to do that. But but the idea was we were going up to this guy's Catskill Mountains or whatever to go up to work with money. And I think that's what they were saying. You know, Mike Tyson, this was the big thing. And we were on our way up there. It was like, oh, yeah. And Mike Tyson used to train up here. This is where you're going to get right. And, and you're going up to work with a world-class guy, you know, talking about Monty Barrett. This is just a great thing. And we're, you know, kind of going into it a little happy about it, a little a little upset, too, because, like, yo, I mean, we didn't even bring our system. We forgot. You said it's only two weeks, so they was kind of rushing us to get our stuff and get on out. And I'm like, man, we ain't get a chance to bring the game up. You know, we're going to be just sitting there bored. Like, what are we going to be doing? And like I'm, they, I hope they got a video store up there so we can get some DVDs or something. This is back when DVDs were still were still in play. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, so we get up there and it was everything that they said, but worse. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because first off, the water. When you turn the water on, there was something wrong with I don't know some system, some issue, whatever with the water, where you can smell the sulfur in the water. It smelled like raw eggs every time you turn the water on. And for the longest time, y'all, I swear, <laughs> when we left the camp, I kept smelling that smell. It stuck with me for a minute. It was horrible, like taking showers. And the thing is, it didn't actually, the smell didn't necessarily get on you, but it was just like, ah, uh, just the smell is like, man, I'm supposed to be clean after taking a shower and that crap. I might as well jump in some, some, some algae or something in dirt, you know what I mean, in the shower. That's what it felt like. I mean, it was kind of nasty, but... But we had to deal with it, and it was like, all right. Then they take us to this room. Now, don't get me wrong. This is this is secluded. This is a situation where you're supposed to be away from everybody. You're supposed to be thinking only about boxing. I get it. We're kids, man. We're like, I think I was, what, 21? Steve was, what, 18? We're like still not even – we don't even understand what we're really into, to, to be honest. And um, and they got us in two – like there's there was three rooms, I think, in the area we were in. 
And like I told you, there wasn't no real entertainment. Like Malik wasn't there this time, like I told you before. So it wasn't no funny guys or anything to really keep us entertained. They did have one DVD player and one TV. And there was another fighter up there too by the name of Vinny Madelone, who good guy, really good guy. Uh, one of the nicer guys, especially when you first meet him uh, in boxing. But, but it was just like, I remember we went into the rooms and I'm looking at the room and I'm looking at these old wool blankets and these beds and I'm sitting there like there's no TV in the room. And I used to love to go to bed with a TV on because I'm so used to watching like movies and then me and Steve like watch a movie, put something on and pass out while it's on. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. None of that stuff was possible. Like we literally had to sit there and look at the ceiling until we passed out. And I remember being up sometimes like two or three in the morning, just looking at the wall like, yo, I cannot wait to go home. Like I, I, I just couldn't wait to leave. And I'm sitting there thinking like, we have to be here. And it, I know, I know it seems ridiculous, but we had to be there for two weeks. It felt like, listen, an hour felt like a day. You understand what I'm saying? An hour felt like a day. So it was almost like we were looking forward so much more to get into the gym than just regular. You know what I'm saying? And, um, it was crazy, man. And I remember like trying to find different things. Like we had a couple of different, there was, there was actually a DVD store. So like one of the days that we had, I guess we had a little downtime on or whatever, which, you know, it seemed like, you know, forever, but um, we had a little downtime. So we went to this, this little market area or whatever. And they had like a DVD store there and we went and picked up some movies. And so we got home, we kind of made it, I guess, livable, you know what I mean? For us. And like I said, we were so, like into the technology, like I think we both had phones. No, I didn't. I don't. I didn't have a phone. My brother had a phone, and uh, but it was just all about boxing. So when people say, "Oh man, I dread man going to camp," it's not so much the training aspect that goes to camp. It's the things that you're giving up, right? Because if if you ever talk to a, a fighter that's really been involved in that and had really had to had to go away camp and get prepared like mentally and, and things like that. And, and, and just sparring and training and running and all that. He'll tell you the worst part of it all is being away from everything and not being able to do some of the regular things that you used to do in life. Of course, you know, women, you can't hang out with your woman, your wife, your wife or your girl or your girls or whoever you might have going on. You can't do none of those things. And with us, that was something we were kind of used to anyway, <laughs> because my dad was like a drill sergeant and we couldn't do nothing when it was training time. And they used to come up with this thing, too. If it's three weeks out from your fight – no, 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 I'm sorry. Four weeks out from your fight, you can't have any contact with women. Not only that, if it's a t- if it's like one the week of your fight, not only do you not have any contact with anybody, for, for the most part, like anybody, but you get your phone taken from them. So now all of that stuff is out. So the outside world is basically cut off from you. And this well, this went on for you know for a long period of time. And it's like, man, I'm up at this camp. It's already like being there is just like looking at watching paint dry, except for when you're training. And I'm just like, yo, I can't do this, man. Like I'm, I'm sitting there, me and Steve are basically like crying and begging to go home. And then not only that, my dad's on top of us making us get up at like three and like not three in the morning, like four in the morning, go out and run hard. Then we got to come back in and we got to keep our same schedule because most of the time when you go to camps, you're all you're on your own schedule as far as the training you do extra, like the extracurriculars. Like, say, if you like going to the gym, you want to hit the bags, you want to train or whatever on a on a day that's not, you know, there's no sparring. Then you, you're free to do it, but you just got to do it on your own, your own schedule. So it's like my dad still wants us to do our three a days. We still got to We still got to. Um, 
we still got to, you know, uh, damn, I can't even get it out. We still got to run in the morning. We still got to do the lifting if they have the weights mm-hmm. available. So, man, it, it was it was just like it was nothing. It was all work and no play. You know what I mean? It, I really appreciated the opportunity and getting to be able to work with somebody like Amante Barrett. And the work was hard, too, by the way. You know what I mean? You get your bumps and bruises up there, even though I felt like I did well and held my own with it. It's just, it was just like, and remember, Steve, who's 140 pounds, doesn't even have the opportunity <laughs> to spar with anybody. So he's just got to just be up there next to me and, and work and deal with all of this agony when he don't even have a fight coming up. I don't even think he had a fight coming up. And shit, I don't even think I had a fight coming up. And it was just like, oh, we just going up here for the experience, man. You just got to go up here for the experience. And I'm sitting there like, man, Forget the experience. I ain't trying to go up to this place, man. I can't even bring my system. I ain't going to be. I'm like, oh, man. It's like it was just to I remember. I remember of all the camps I've had. And I'm, I, I don't want to say it like, oh, I didn't like being up there with, you know, with Monty or a thing they had going on. It was just the circumstances. It was last minute. So we wasn't really 100 percent fully prepared. And it was just so ingrained in work, work, work. And it was like, dude. Like we, we, the only fun, the only good part was when my um, the manager's son, who was a real good friend of mine at the time, would come up, and he would come. I would take a drive up because he was coming from Philly. He would take a drive up to up to the Cascades or whatever and hang out with us for a couple of days because you know he wanted to see how we train and he also wanted to make sure we were alright and everything. But he would take us places like we would go places. But I'm telling you, man, I the, then we went to another camp up there. But the, and believe me, when they asked us to come back to that next camp, it took, oh, my God. I was sitting there. I, I had my head in my lap. I was, oh, man, I was sitting there like, please, God, let something happen to where we don't have to go to this camp. And I think in this in this time, because I don't I don't know if you, you know who Dominic Gwynn is, right? Yeah, he, so, uh, yeah, of course. You boxed him a couple of times as well, didn't you? Right. Well, I boxed him once, and, and uh, I think I was. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we. I've seen him several times too. After that, he's a nice. He's a nice dude. But he was. He was a tough fighter. And at the time, Who did you box well, twice? Who am I getting confused with? Did I box? Oh, Derek Ross. Yeah, yeah, I fought him twice. yeah. There we go. Go on. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dominic Dominic Gwynn was actually the the man at one point in in in, in, um, in the U.S. Like he was like the best hope for a world title coming out of the U.S. at one point. But um, anyway, the the so after the first camp that I had with them, I think there was like another period. There was a little just, period of time. I just want to insert a fun fact. A fun fact. What's that? Um, <laughs> uh, the night that you boxed Derek, sorry, not Derek Rossi, um, Dominic Gwynn. I'm getting confused again. The, the night you boxed That's... Dominic Gwynn, there was three judges, of course. It went to, to, the, uh, to, the, to the decision, a unanimous decision over 10 rounds for you. Two oh. of the judges, though, um, some people may know. Their, their names are quite, uh, quite, quite spoken of. Um, I can't believe this, actually. But two of the judges were yeah. Adelaide Bird and, oh. and C.J. Ross, <laughs> baby. I can't believe it. <laughs> Yo, what? You're making me laugh. Yo, listen, you. But that is true. You, you that won. is crazy. You, I don't feel like you that. won on um, on Adelaide Bird's card, a hundred to ninety. You completely shut him out. Do you know what that, right. that that you may have even lost that fight? If they both gave it to you, you probably lost that fight, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> I might have. I might have. Yo, you know, you know what's funny about that? That's that whole statement, though. The funniest thing, right, is that. That fight 
wasn't not 190. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you why there wasn't 190. It was because I kept giving him opportunities to stay in the fight. Now granted, I felt like I won 8 out of the 10 rounds probably, but I let him I let him be in the fight. You understand what I'm saying? Like and it was like, man, I didn't at the time I didn't think so. But when I watched the replay, I'm like, geez, man, I should have done so much more. Even with Calvin Brock, it's another guy I fought at, at some point, and, 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 and he I kept giving them opportunities. Like I felt like honestly, I felt like I beat Calvin Brock more. I don't, I don't, I think more decisively. I want to say, maybe I won more rounds with Gwen, but I think because well, you know the, the the Calvin Brock fight was 12 rounds, the Gwen was only 10. But I'm t- I'm sitting there thinking, I think that I beat. Brock more decisive than I did Gwen, and Gwen wasn't obviously at that time. He, just, he had come down a little bit, you know. He wasn't what he was. But anyway, I I, I think we got off track a little bit, but because <laughs> you wanted to bring up those judges, those two awesome judges that you brought up, they they've had a great great career in judging, as we can see with some of these some of these scorecards they put out. You know what I mean? Damn. I don't want to be I don't want to be too dis- disrespectful, but okay, let's leave it at that. But anyway. We were talking about those uh, Monty Bear cans. I'm gonna bring I'm gonna bring up the other one, and um, the second time. So, the second time we're going up there, and you know Rob comes with the news, and and then I think Steve told me beforehand that oh man, I think we might have to be we might be going back up to Monty's can camp again. I'm like, are you I'm really serious? Like yo, we just we just was up there and I think it was probably like months before that, but it felt like we was just there. Like, come on, man. Anytime you go to a situation that you don't want to be at, you don't want to go back. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, Oh, what the hell are we going to do? Like, how are we going to get out of this zero weight? We're not thinking about like, Oh, we're, uh, uh, Oh, it's just a camp. Let's just deal with, no, we're thinking about, is there a way we can get out of this? Like maybe fake an injury. Like it was that bad the first time, like for us, we really, really didn't want to be there. It was just like, what the hell is we, we going back up to these Catskill Mountains? But the good thing is there was other people there this time, and we had a lot of entertainment. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? With There was uh, – I can't remember this guy's name. Uh, first, okay, first I'm going I'm to name – it was uh, me, m- my brother Steve, uh, and, uh, of course, Mozzie Barrett, and Malik Scott was there. Oh, big time entertainment with him for sure, without a doubt. Um, and uh, this, oh world my god, champ, yo, world champion. <laughs> but then there was also this other guy, Talmadge Griffiths, who had fought Joe Macy at one point in his career, and I think he got, I think he got stopped. I'm not sure, but you know, of course, everybody has their idea of what thing, you know, what should have happened and what could have, should have, would have happened in a fight. But anyway, um, and then there was another. Another fighter up there, I just can't. There was another guy who was, I think, a little lighter in weight, and I think this time Steve actually had some sparring. There was actually Curtis. Um, damn, I cannot remember, get it. Can't get his name out. He got stopped by Triple G a little while back. He was oh, really, um, he was doing really Curtis good. Stevens. Yes, well, I could not remember his name. Curtis Stevens. And then there was another his his boy who was up there who was also was a really really talented boxer, but but he he never. I don't think he really continue i think i forget what his name was but we were there was a lot more people at this camp and it was a lot more fun you know what i mean it was a lot more first believe me the first time we went up there we were like yo i i can't i can't i can't do this like i <laughs> like i'm thinking about like uh just like trying to find a way never to have to do something like this again but we end up getting up there this time now granted the water issue is still still there 
<laughs> so we still got to deal with that with the shower. But then there was this other fighter, for whatever reason, he was trying to make weight. And he always, I, don't, I shouldn't even say this. I, I can't remember his name, so there's no way I'm going to make him feel bad about it. Um, he would always smell like, uh, <laughs> smell like the bathroom. <laughs> the bathroom. <laughs> the bathroom and mouthwash. I don't know what the hell he was and he would and he would always eat these rice cakes. And I'm sitting there and we looking at him like, damn dog, and we <laughs> like I wish you could eat you know what I mean, eat something else because it's just like you're suffering up here with us, you know what I'm saying? So uh <laughs> but he just I, but and then he also and he, and this is when we were always cutting our hair because like I said, we, we didn't really have uh, a lot of free time, a lot of play time to go to different places. And all we were doing was training. So we had to figure out a way to get haircuts. Plus we didn't trust the barbers in Philly because we didn't really know anybody. So <laughs> we could start cutting our own hair. So the guy was an African guy and he somehow made his hair like cut a special way to make it like it was a crown. And he was literally, everything was bald except for this crown that you put around. I, 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 I could, I could not make this a hair, up. It's, I, I, a crown of hair. A crown of hair. No bullshit. I swear I'm not making this up. And because Steve was cutting his hair while we were up there, I didn't cut mine. I didn't have to cut mine because I cut mine when we were home. Steve was like, had clip, we had clippers and everything. And the guy had, well, I think he had, yeah, he had, yeah, we had clippers. And he, the guy asked, like, oh, could you fix my cut? Because I lost my title. So I, I don't, I want it to be like a broken crown or something. So I'm like, I'm sitting there listening to this stuff. You know, I'm la- I can't help it. I can't help but I'm just laughing. The guy probably has no clue that I'm laughing at him, but I'm laughing and just, I'm laughing at Steve because he keeps getting called in there to make adjustments to this dude's head. And I'm, I'm like, how did you get caught up in this whole situation? But it's like, whatever. We, we, we can't mate, so we got to look out for each other. Not to mention Malik Scott. And you know Malik Scott. Oh, Lord. This dude always got some some joke, some story, and he making fun of me. And, and there was some there was some stuff there was like um, I remember we were in at the table, and he was actually trying to lose weight at this point, so he couldn't. So he he wasn't irritable or nothing, but he had to eat like egg whites and stuff like that all the time. And he was in salads, and he couldn't really enjoy himself. Like at that time, we I was a big time meat eater, so I you know paused. I was a big time. You know, I don't want to say the word meat anymore, <laughs> but I was, but I was, <laughs> but I was uh, always eating stuff like that. I'm not going to say that word. And um, so he had to basically watch us. I and mean, don't get me wrong. He would still eat protein, but he just didn't. Um, he just didn't. He just couldn't eat it like how we were eating it. Like we had bratwurst, hot dogs, all kind of crap that we was throwing on the grill back there. But anyway, I remember one time we were watching some videos and stuff and, and we were all talking. It was me. Um, it was me, Malik, they got Tom and Steve, and we were all sitting there. And I remember we started watching this video of a previous fight I had. And and we were, we were always just watching videos, different videos of different fights that we had or whatever. And I think because uh, Malik always, you know, because he, he's a boxing head too. Even the, even back then, that's all, he, all showing all these old fights and different stuff like that. And so <laughs> we were laughing because my dad had to, had also had had our videotape up there for some of our sparring, some of the fights we were in there, right? And we had started talking about the story, how tough my dad was on me. And my dad was still there at this time too, but we were, you know, we'd be talking amongst each other and it was how hard he was on not only me, but Steve and just in general. And he was like, yo, at the last, at one of my fights, 
and I said this to I said this to Malik, in one of my fights, I had fought a guy who was real tough, and his idea, his whole aim was to just make me have a hard time. It's not necessarily to make, you know, to help to, to, to win. Like he wasn't necessarily trying to win. Like he would do stuff like put his head in my face, like headbutt me and, 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 and hold my arms down, act like he was going to throw punches and just clinch, stuff like that, right? And so he made it hard. Even though I won every round, it kind of made it like kind of ugly and difficult. And my dad was pissed because for whatever reason, I'm supposed to get out there and stop him. Not to mention at the, on that particular fight, I had the flu. <laughs> so I'm like, I got to figure out how to keep this guy happy, please him by knocking this guy out, even when I'm sick and can't barely lift my arms. But anyway, so I get in there, I beat the guy unanimously. But I remember at the end of the fight, and we let, and we he rewind, and Malik rewinded this shit probably like what, I don't know, a hundred times. My dad, after they announced the decision and that I won, my dad took the roll of tape that he cut off, you know, from cut my gauze and everything off, and he had like a roll of tape in his hand, like bought up tape. He took and baseball pitched that ball, like the ball of thing at me after the fight was over. And I swear to God, I, yeah, it was funny as hell. I didn't, I didn't think it was funny at the time because he was, you know, chewing my head, you know, chewing my, chewing me out about how bad I performed. But I remember Malik had a hundred. He was even he must have rewinded that shit a hundred thousand times and just kept laughing and it's like sticking a knife in and turning it. Now granted, I mean I'm laughing because you know I I can take a joke and I understand it was at my expense, but <laughs> it was just like constant. And even and even after that, he's like, yo, yo, bring that tape out again so we can watch that video of your dad throwing the tape at you. Like when things got like when it was a little when it was like tough or whatever. Like when I when he had to sit there and eat egg whites and we were eating, you know, chicken and, and all all kind of other carbs and shit that he wasn't supposed to eat. You know, he pre pull that because he wanted to make me feel bad too, I guess. You know, pull that tape out of your dad throwing the tape at you or some shit like that. It was like, it was like you know, this dude is horrible. And not only that, for whatever reason. Right. We're young. Like, I'm, well, we're young. I mean, don't get me wrong. Malik was young, too, obviously. And well, Malik was young, too. But this guy, for whatever reason, this guy, Talmadge, he always because I, you know, I'm coming up and I'm, I'm you know, I'm still kind of wet behind the ears in the, in the sport and all that. So he's saying he, he just for some reason felt the need to attack me. Every, you know what, though, Joey, everybody does that to me because I seem such an easy target because I don't really I don't really fight back unless you try to throw punches at me, but <laughs> I don't really fight back with words. I don't really care to to argue about stuff. It's really not really worth it. And I'll laugh at myself just as easy as somebody else was. So, I mean, I guess I'm an easy target. For, so for whatever reason, he always tried to bust me, bust on me or, you know, always give me crap. And Steve, like he often does, even now, for whatever reason, because, he, you know, I'm not really trying to, you know, start no show or whatever. He always feels the need to to come to the aid he always like jumps you know got my back as soon as he starts saying stuff yeah, look at your head because dude had a ball and man well, look at your head and you probably got knocked out by this guy because you just can't fight he always had to not necessarily in a negative too much too much of a negative way all the time but he was like he was getting back with him and don't get me wrong every once in a while i would get back with the guy but it's just like those type of things when you're around somebody so much and you get to know them and you see what their demeanor's like, and that's what a lot of people see with me. They always try to they try to take little stabs at me and little stuff like that. But anyway, that was just some of the little stuff that went on, you know, between us in in the camp. And that was the camp, like I told you earlier, that Monty was getting ready for Dominic Gwynn. And 
we also had like side bets <laughs> in the back talk about like what we thought was going to happen because at this time Dominic Gwynn was a killer like everybody was like oh, Dominic Gwynn's going to be that dude and I was like damn if I ever have to fight him I don't know what I'm going to do type stuff you know what I mean mm-hmm. and um and and we were sitting there talking even Malik and Malik's you know Monty's a friend of Monty but also Malik was a uh, a friend of Dominic Gwynn's because they were on the Olympic team uh, the Olympic team or something at some point or they were in the Nationals and all that together because they were big both big time amateurs at one point and um he was like, man, I don't know, man. I think Dominic might get him, but you know, I don't want to say nothing because you know I'm in the camp with the guy, and then we, you know, I would say I don't know, man. I, I think he might get him too, and then you know it, we're we're just talking. We don't know what might happen, and we're we're in Monty's camp, and I'm like, man, I really hope he wins. You know what I mean? But I just don't know because this guy Dominic Wynn looks like a killer, and you know, of course, fight actually comes up, and. I don't know what it was. I don't, maybe, you know, dominant. I mean, uh, Monty just had what it was, what he needed for, or, or he had his number, so to speak, in that fight, or he just trained harder, or he was better than we expected him to be. Or maybe we were better, because I remember doing so well with Monty and camp, that I'm just sitting there thinking, like, man, Dominic Gwynn's such a killer. I just can't imagine, you know, me being able to, you know, sometimes it gets like that at times. Like you're always confident, you know, fighters are always confident and everything. Don't get me wrong. But yours don't, if, if they'll, they would be lying if they said there wasn't a fighter that they saw and they were like, yo, I don't know, man. This guy looks like he's going to be tough. If I think it's like looking at Mike Tyson, I'm not saying that's exactly what the situation is like, but it's like looking at Mike Tyson. Trust me. Most people look at Mike Tyson. They like, yo, I don't know what I would do if Mike was coming at me. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> so I was thinking about that with him and I'm just sitting there thinking like if I was doing so well with Monty I just can't imagine you know Monty being able to beat him you know but with with Monty he was a, he was a, a pretty good puncher or no more than a pretty good puncher a really good puncher Monty Barrett was had a heart as big as as big as his body like every he was all heart like he cared nothing about what what this dude was supposed to be or how good he was and he and he he had the attitude to win and when he got in there he showed it because he shut he, he shut me up and i'm i'm on the couch i think i was at a friend's house cheering him on like damn bro this dude actually beating dominic Gwynn. And i remember it was a majority decision too and i think it was ridiculous that it was a majority decision i think it should have been an easy easy unanimous decision it was probably eight eight to four nine to three nine to three is probably more accurate in that in that fight but um anyway there was also and I know I'm kind of going in circles or a little like kind of, you know, back and forth. But I remember there was another situation that happened during this camp and it, had, it has to do with sparring this one day. And this I haven't seen something like this in a long time. Besides when I was up there with um with uh, with with Tyson and Peter and, you know, all the guys is we would have those big jam sessions with a whole bunch of good fighters in the gym. Right. Well, this one time up there. I don't know what it was about this day or what the whole thing, what, what the plan was, but I swear we had to have like maybe 30 fighters in that little gym. And the gym was no bigger than maybe, I don't know. It wasn't, it, let's put it this way. It wasn't that big. The gym, the, the, uh, the ring was on the floor. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't and, as big as champ's gym. Let me see champ. Oh no, not even close. No way. That gym is... Wait, Champ's Gym? Which well, I'm trying to think Champ's Gym. Champ's Gym is Ant's Gym, isn't it? Oh, you're talking about Ant's? Oh, no. Not even. Yeah, Man, it wasn't even gym. third. That's a huge gym. It wasn't even... Wait, that is... Uh, it's called Champ's Gym, right? 
Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, it was it was called Champs. Yeah, but no, but look, it wasn't even a strip of that. It was like, it was it was a it was like a garage. Wait, it was a, how it was does a... it compare to um to I don't want to go Very... into names, but to uh you know the the gym that you took me to, you know the the we did a little bit of work in that gym there in the basement. Oh, 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 man. That gym is probably a little bit about that size, about that size, as and it was nowhere near as nice. <laughs> not the weight, not the weight portion, not the weight portion. I don't want you to get confused and say, "Oh, the the no." It was I'm talking about just the gym, yeah, yeah, the yeah, boxing, just part. the boxing part, yeah, yeah. Just the boxing part is probably this is probably the same size, maybe a little bit bigger, maybe a little bit wow. bigger. But I'm not saying that the gym was ugly or not good or not clean it was no it was fine it was just it was made for rough and tough type situation but we had 30 guys 30 maybe more of of, of fighters like real dudes on the rise in there like Curtis Stevens was in there the other Walter Wade I was talking about was in there I don't want to call out the wrong names I I can't I can't remember who else was in there as far as the lighter weight guys but I think there were some lighter weight guys in there too um but it was mad heavyweights in there. I remember one of the dudes that I really, really, really respected at this time. I don't know if you'll know this guy. I don't know this name, but his name was Lawrence Claybay. Mm-hmm. You ever you remember? You ever heard of Lawrence Claybay? He was like an Olympic. Uh, I, I don't know if he was a medalist. I can't remember for sure. Uh, I, he had actually beat. Did he beat Vladimir or Vitaly in the Olympics? Or, or not? Maybe not in the Olympics, but um, not in the Olympics, but um. And like a world championship, I can't remember. I know he was like one of the world champions, like a world championship level guy in the amateurs. And as he, when he turned pro, he his issue was like, you know, of course, conditioning and training. And he didn't he really, lost to Vlad he didn't, in, the, in the Olympics. Right, he lost to Vlad. And was that in the finals? Uh, I think it was. Um, no, I don't that. think so. Okay. Well, he was, but he was like a, he was, I know he was an Olympian, but I know he beat somebody of note at one point. Um, and, and maybe not in the Olympics, but in the World Championships or something like that. I can't remember. But anyway, and I remember seeing him. And there was this guy, and I know you, you're going to know. The, you ever heard? You heard of the Clifford AT and the Black yeah, Rhino, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, he fought the Black Rhino. And when I came up in Pittsburgh before I moved to Philly, there was a little bit of talk of me going down and sparring with the Rhino. And this was when he was on his way up. And he, and you know, the Black Rhino actually got a win over one over. Uh, a world champion by the name of um, Lehman Brewster. Mm-hmm. Early in his career, it was on KO Nation. People don't even remember. I remember. I, I think I watched. I think I was there and watched it. Either. I think so. Anyway, they were talking about me going on and sparring with the Rhino, and man, and I was like, yo. They was talking about how oh man, he puts that heat on. He he when he starts coming forward, he don't stop throwing punches, and he's not gonna red. You know, I was you know I was like eighteen, maybe I just turned eighteen. I just turned pro or whatever. And they was talking about me going on the camp. My dad was like, nah, nah, because he he let the hype get him. You know what I mean? Not to let me go down there and work with him. And but anyway, so I go down to um and I go, well, I'm we're up at that camp and I see this guy Lawrence Claybay. Now Lawrence Claybay fought him at one point. And we seen how good and how skilled Lawrence Claybay was, right? And he was like a little guy. And at that time, we like watching the smaller guys fight, not 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 so much the heavyweights, because heavyweights, 
not all the not for the most part don't really show those skills you know what i mean like like uh like lightweight guys do you know they're a little more skillful a little fast you know like pretty much you know not a little faster but faster sharper you know more more skillful so we respect so if we see a heavyweight that does that kind of stuff i was like damn and this guy's sharp he has speed he's throwing combinations he and this was and i, I think up to that point this was the rhino's tough t- toughest test and he actually showed out and then i remember at the end of the fight the rhino was throwing shots and he just i guess he just so you know under control comfortable with him and that he could take his punch that this dude literally dropped his hands to his waist and let the rhino hit him like five or six times and after i seen that i was like yo i wouldn't want to fight that dude fast forward to the camp <laughs> we up there who walks in the gym fucking lawrence clay bay i'm like oh Man, I'm like, yo, and we went up to him and started talking to him. Like, we were, like, I'm not, you know, see, the thing is, when you meet, uh, like, your, 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 let us say, your equal, your, your counterpart, your, your guys who, who, um, do what you do, there's a certain amount of respect. Now, it's not like we were starstruck, like, he's a star, because the guy wasn't, like, he, he didn't even win the fight. You know what I mean? At that point, back then, we're looking at, he was on TV, you know what I'm saying? But we still, like, damn, we respect his ability. And then they told me, Oh yeah, you y'all gonna be sparring, and I'm like, oh man, I'm about to spar with this dude, man. What am I going to do? Like, he's he's fast. He probably faster than me. He he probably better than me. You know, this stuff, this stuff that goes through your head when you're looking at somebody like that who you really respect, right? And I remember getting in there, and I'm nervous. You know what I mean? But I'm like, I'm in here now. You know what I mean? That's you just gotta, mm-hmm. I gotta show up. You know, so. I remember the first couple of shots I threw and they all landed. I'm like, bang, bang, bang. I'm like, oh, shit. I landed those. <laughs> that felt kind of good. And then I'm expecting him like to turn it up, come back with a six piece at me. You know what I mean? And I'm like, and he, and he threw a couple of shots and I missed, I made him miss. I'm like, Oh, am I really this nice <laughs> in my head? You know, you start thinking like, am I this good or, or was he just that bad or, or what am I, what's going on? I don't, you know, you don't really know. Right. So then, <laughs> so then I, I, I throw another couple punches and I'm like, yo, I'm hitting this dude easy. And I'm like, man, something's going to change. Something's going to happen. You know what I mean? Through the course of this sparring that, you know, and then we were, I think we were doing like two in or like I would do, I think I did one with him that he went out and then somebody else jumped in that he would jump back in and then I would come It's something like that. Right. And I was like, man, I'm, let me just get out of this round alive, basically, right? And I'm sitting there like, damn, I'm really doing this well. And then I remember just kind of doing that good the whole time. And I sparred with him some more. And it was the same thing. And I'm like, damn. And then I started looking at Steve, and then we like look at like, and he was coming over to me like, Steve, like, yo, man, you look good. You're doing this. And I'm sitting there surprised, like, I, I'm sitting like, yo, I'm doing this to this dude. Like, what's the deal? Like, is he just taking it easy on me? And I, I remember saying something, like, no, you, you don't got to take it easy. You can go. He's like, take it easy? What you talking about me taking it easy? I'm trying. And I, I'm like, yo, I, I'm like, I, I, I thought he was taking it easy because I'm not really expecting him to be, not, not saying he was easy, but to land shots on. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't expect somebody like that to be easy to hit. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, damn. So after the sparring, we actually start chopping it up. We start talking. And he's talking, man, you good, man. You won't be, you won't be this, you won't be that. I'm surprised. I'm surprised I never heard of you before, man. You you doing well up here, man. You just keep working. And 
I'm sitting there like, I can't believe this dude's telling me this. And I don't, I, do I believe it? You know what I'm saying? And it's like, it, it was just, it was just a shocking experience. It's like, this is why I say for fighters, young fighters that's coming up. I mean, I don't know, you know, what the idea is, what their, uh, what their trainers or, or, or their managers or whatever have, in, you know, in store from what they want them to do. But there's nothing like going to a, a professional, high, high level professional camp situation and learning. Like I've went to, I've been in Klitschko's camp before I fought him, way before I fought him, and and I've been to John Ruiz's camp. I've been to Asim Rockman, my other, my other, my main man, Asim Rockman's camp at one point. And these dudes, like all, like they, you learn from them. You learn how things are supposed to be run. And I remember going to Vladimir's camp and seeing how professionally ran it was, how everything was set a certain way, how the they had they had uh, the screen like the, the um, videos of calvin brock on on video playing in the gym while he's getting his hands wrapped you know him having the same conversation similar conversation with emmanuel this one you know god rest his soul emmanuel who was there and i'm just looking at how professionally ran that thing was how everything was regimented properly everything was done properly even with us and rockman the same thing you know any uh john ruiz very similar you know what i mean monty barrett's thing it's very similar when these dudes you get to a certain level that's how your camp should be run. Anytime I've had a good performance, a really good performance, it was directly due to what kind of camp I had. If I had a great camp, I had a great fight. You know, when they say you train like you, you, you fight like you train, that's 100% accurate. Your mind is in the right place. You're completely comfortable and confident in what you've done. Even if you're not confident in your ability, you're confident in your, the work you put in. You understand what I'm saying? So me going to these camps, and I'm just going to talk about those two at this point. You know, maybe maybe later on we'll be able to talk about some other ones and some other things that I experienced with, with you know throughout that. But these types of things are extremely important for for fighters to experience or and 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 to to see what to see what people that are slightly above them or or in the next level and next tier of their career, you know, and where they're at how it's going to be and how it's going to look and then to learn from these guys like monty barrett like uh like vladimir klitschko like um tyson fury even though i was older than him and i'm i had all these experiences before i even met him that he didn't even have but still you see how these things are run you know what i'm saying you think like and that's why and that's another thing you look at peter peter fury's camp and i'm gonna say this i don't like i said i want to get too much into what we did there because we're gonna do that in a later time mm-hmm. but his camp was run spot on everything he, he had everything down to the ounce from what we're eating to what you should have every bit he was like a scientist when it comes to this stuff whether he knew it before i got there or not i couldn't tell you know what i'm saying he knew he had everything in play in place yeah he had to train at a certain time we had to run at a certain time we had to uh, uh lift at a certain time we had to eat at a certain time. We had to we had to have a certain amount of scoops in our in our shakes, and you know what I mean. Like everything was regimented, mm-hmm. and that's the difference between average and great. You know what I'm saying? You know that's that's just it. And 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 these type of situations and these types of stories need to be told. And then obviously there's the other side of the sport that I don't really want to get into too much, but that also needs to be told because people need to see what's coming down the road. You know what I mean on the, on the on the business aspect of this whole thing too. And you know, again, you've mentioned there about the two camps with Monty Barrett. Um, let me identify Eddie. Which part of your career 
is this if you can if you can remember back so again we're going to do it like a timeline obviously you know next week or the week after whenever you you come back we'll go on you know we'll we'll go chronologically is what i'm saying so what what part of your career okay. have you got up to there we might have to do a prequel at some point <laughs> but now this was like um like i had been in pittsburgh i started my first term pro in pittsburgh so uh, this is when i was in philadelphia this is the this was like the first going into the second year of me being in philly and you know i had some like fights some small time fights in, in philly up to that point but this was my first that was my first major camp that i wanted to put on there was another camp too that i had that i had gone to a little after and i think that yeah that was um that was when i went down to buddy mcgird's camp down in um down in vero but these were the first two camps like solid camps and it was in isolation Mm-hmm. And there was a couple other things that went on in that camp that I really get into, but we I wanted to keep it kind of streamlined to what we were talking about and and yeah. you know crazy story from a leak. But um, but anyway, yeah, but but that was around that time. Like I was still in the what the second year or so of my uh, pro career, I want to say. Okay, so this is oh okay, only two years in. So this is around about the same sort of time you box the likes of uh, <laughs> you box a guy called Dave Chappelle. <laughs> yes yes i did i know you <laughs> went up straight up 100 percent. and I, I forget who somebody was asking. i think i was talking to my man and and he is like yo dave Chappelle." i was like yeah man yeah, you that was his him, name you boxed him you beat him then you gave him an, an immediate rematch <laughs> yeah because and i'm gonna tell you a little, a little small part of that was the first fight people were kind of questioning because of where it was because it was in homewood i, I know he's gonna say homewood pa or which or pittsburgh pa basically down the road from my house because it was in the Coliseum, right, but yeah. it's not, it, it, you know, it's not that it was, it, the guy was tough. He was undefeated. He was four and zero at the time, fresh out of jail, <laughs> strong, heavy, heavy hands. Just like he wasn't Dave Chappelle, the comedian for sure. You couldn't get him mixed up with that, but he was, um, but he, he was still raw. He didn't, you know, even though he, you know, obviously he had boxed before he went in, he, when he got out, he had, he had a, couple of knockouts. I think he had one knockout when I fought him. But he was a he was a I remember he's just a big a strong guy. And I remember after the fight was over, he put his hand on my on the back of my head, put his hand on my head. I was like, God this dude just his hand is heavy as a a fifty pound weight. I'm like, what did he put his hand on my head like that? But you know I ain't gonna say that at that point. I'm already exhausted anyway from the fight. But anyway, um then a lot of people were questioning. Not a lot of people. There was a few people questioning the fight. And I remember watching the video of the fight. And I'm like, yo, what are they questioning? I won like, it was an eight-round fight. I won like five or six rounds of the eight rounds. You know what I mean? It was just that when you get your eyes conditioned to see something, when you're used to somebody who's dominating up to that point, you're expecting to see that. And you don't see that in a fight. Like if he's not dominating every single round and almost knocking the guy out, they're going to look, oh, he lost it. And that's what some of these guys were. And there was a guy from Philly was living in Pittsburgh at the time at the time his name was Celine he came to the barbershop and was talking about it after and talk about how man I feel like you know they gave that you gave you a hometown decision I'm like yeah all right man whatever and he was talking about this other guy the this from the area his name by the name of Raquan Kimbra who was really is really talented was really talented and did a lot of good you know a lot of good things as an amateur but just wasn't ever really turned the corner as a pro but he was talking about how great he was and he was a lightweight fighter real sharp and fast and he just was talking so much smack about me and how I didn't do this and how I didn't do that and how I need this help and I need that help, you know? So ran it back. I felt ran it back at the blue horizon. I felt it. Yes. And I felt it. And that was when I started to get with Rob. And it's funny enough, 
that was the fight that I basically auditioned for Big Rob to look at me in the fight. And he, he, and he saw that fight and was like, man, this dude is good, man. He's, this guy got hands like, you know, he, he may not be Ali, but, you know, he's, 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 he got hand speed like it and he got this like it. And at that time, I was like, two, what is it, when I was younger? Like, I don't know, maybe eight, 19, 18, 19. And, um, you know, I was really sharp, but just like not where I needed to be. I needed to be in better shape. I needed, you know, all these little things. And then I'm fighting the front. Everybody knows it's hard to fight in front of the hometown people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard. There's a lot of added pressure on that. But anyway. The second fight, I fight him at the blue, and this fight was the one of the only times that I remember being really hurt in a fight. Nobody knew it though. He threw a haymaker with his. It must have made his eyes. It might have had his eyes closed when he threw, it, and caught me flush. Boom! And I remember seeing nothing but lights, colors, nothing, like blinded for for like a split second, and immediately the bell rang. Dave and I remember just, yes, Dave Chappelle, <laughs> the com- the, not the actor comedian, but this other guy. But he hits me, and I'm like, oh, well. And and I remember the bell rang, and as soon as the bell rang, it's almost like something ran off in my head, and my vision cleared up, everything was good. And I turned around, walked back to the corner. Nobody knew. I didn't say nothing about it because I didn't want to tell my dad that. I didn't want to say anything. He and then I went back out the next for that man. Huh? He would have hit. Again? He would have hit you with some tape. He would have definitely hit me with something. Maybe a bat. Who knows? But anyway, after that, he goes. The guy. I go back out after that. After that round, and I beat him half to death. I tried to beat him to death. You know what I mean? I almost stopped him at a couple points. And but it was like I felt the need, and not just me. Rob, it was his opportunity. He's like, let me see this guy. You know, this guy gave you a little bit of a tough fight. You know what? We'll give him another opportunity to get you back. You know what I mean? If you can't, you'll see what happens. And he gave him the opportunity. I almost got him out of there. But shit, he almost got me out of there. Nobody even knew it. <laughs> but who knows? But anyway, but um, but that kind of situation, you know, at, at that time, it's like this is the this is the gradual process, man. This is this is this is what fighters fighters have to go through. Those camps I talked about, these early fights, all of this stuff is stuff that regular people watch boxing and say, Oh, I think this and oh, I think that before, you know, when they're looking at the surface and you know, the surface area with of what's going on here, it's like, nah, you got, there's a lot more to this than just these, these punches being thrown here. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But like I say, um, you know, that was, that was around about the time, um, that, that you were in those, those two camps with Monty Barrett. So around about the 2002 mark, you reckon Eddie looking back now, well, uh, quite a little bit later, a little bit later, maybe, maybe, Oh, Three. It was a little past three. Okay. A little. Uh, no, I say a little past three. It was, it was like. Let me see. Let me see. Yeah, it was like when which, I first got up there. Fight, so was, which uh, this would be much easier. Which fight? Uh, the second camp. Obviously, we spoke about the first camp and the second camp. But which fight? Um, when you were brought in for camp the second time for um for, for Monty Barrett, who was he preparing for? Who was Monty Barrett preparing for the second time? Yeah. Dominic Gwynn. Okay, that was so the one that, where that's how we'll yeah. get the uh, the, the yeah, get the, yeah. So, yeah, that was the second camp. Right. So and you know what? So what was that? What year was that? That was in uh, uh, 04. Yeah, 04. 
March, yeah, March yeah, 04. Right. So that's where we are. So yeah. So yeah. back that 100%. kind of time, back that kind of time. Yeah, that's when you were boxing. Uh, your your next fight would be um, Marcus Road. So yeah, we'll we'll pause it there. Yeah, Marcus Roadie. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll I remember that. We'll pause it there. Yeah. We'll pick it up, and then of course you know next week or whatever we'll we'll get to those other camps and we'll go through some of these other fights because I liked that little story there about. Uh, about Dave Chappelle in, in in the first and second fight. That's a story that you've you've probably never even yeah. spoke about that, you know, before. Now probably not. And people don't really know it. And like I said, there was not a lot of people that knew that I got caught with a shot at the I don't know if it was the first end of the first round. Boom. That could have been was, the end, man. You know what? I was I was in such great shape. Cause that's all we did. You know that's all we did. So when I came so a snap of a snap of a finger, boom. I, I was back. Like I said, the bell rang. Boom! I turned. I turned back toward the toward the uh, toward the corner. Went back and sat down like nothing happened. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. So let's hope. Let's just hope. That I'm hoping. Well, no, there's no hoping and no no hoping necessary. I made it. <laughs> I'm here. You know what I mean? I didn't lose that fight. Thank God. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. That has been this week's um, story time with Eddie or whatever we called it. The the lockdown knockdown again. Knockdown. I like. We, we, I, I should like probably that. put a poll out on Twitter and, and someone can uh, get you know people can get their votes in and you know they can let us know they can vote for what it should be called or alternatively send in a suggestion. We're open to suggestions. Whoever whoever comes up with the best one. They'll get credit for it, and we'll use it from from you know from the next time we do this onwards. So uh, yeah, that's been this week's story time with Eddie, and um, it's now time to welcome our our sole guest on this week's podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the former IBF junior middleweight world champion. It is of course Mr. Raul Marquez. Raul, welcome to the show, my friend. Well, thank you. Um, you know, thanks for the invite, and uh, I'm. I'm... Finally, uh, finally, we get together and we're, we're able to talk. You know, I know it took a couple of weeks, and uh, you know, for us to figure out stuff. But I'm, I'm glad that we're on the phone now. Absolutely, I, I echo that. So, Raul, first things first. I quite often start with this question, really, um, when doing these types of interviews. How did you first get into boxing? What's your earliest memory? Well, I mean, you know, I got a lot of memories, of course, but you know, my, I, I'll, I'll, I'll start from the beginning. My dad, my father, was always a big boxing fan in Mexico, right? And he used to collect the uh, Ring Mundial, which is a Ring magazine called Ring Mundial, back in, the, you know, back in the late '60s, early '70s. It was a magazine called Ring Mundial in Mexico, or it was worldwide. Not too sure about that, but he was a big boxing fan. He used to follow all the Mexican fighters back then, Carlos Zarate. Uh, Ruben Oliveres. Uh, he just used to watch boxing, you know, and he was a, a fan of boxing, a fanatic. And, uh, uh, you know, when I was born, I was born in Mexico in 1971. Actually, when I came out of my mom's womb, you know, my dad says that I was throwing punches and he said, man, I'm going to make this guy a champion. I'm going to make this guy a boxer. So, you know, that's the story that my dad says. And, you know, I, I sure enough, I started boxing when I was seven years old here in Houston, Texas, because we moved to Houston. Uh, you know, from Mexico, went to Chicago and then Chicago, Illinois, went to Houston, Texas. And that's when I started boxing at PABA, Boxing Academy, Progressive Amateur Boxing Association with Reverend Ray Martin. And uh, at, before we joined the boxing gym, my dad, he ha- he filled up a, a an army bag, a green army bag. He filled it up with sawdust. OK, and that was my heavy bag. And, uh, I, I, you know, he used to teach me what he could and I used to hit the heavy bag and, you know, that, that's, that's what I remember, you know, in Northside Houston 
and then of course we joined uh, you know the, the boxing gym excellent after that excellent yes sir excellent i love hearing these these little stories of how it all began you know there's some real interesting ones right and obviously right. you mentioned there you know you were born in mexico um at what point did you move to the states you mentioned you were in the states when you were seven when you first started at what at what age were you when you first made the trip i want to say that i was about two or three years old when we moved to uh chicago illinois oh. my dad had already been working in chicago as an illegal alien uh, uh, like in, I want to say 1968, 69, you know, he was gathering money to marry my mom, uh, and, and, you know, uh, yeah, come back to Mexico and marry my mom. So yeah, he had already been working in Chicago. Uh, so he, you know, he gathered money, whatever money he had to gather, make to, to have a wedding and marry my mom. And then they got married in 1970, in October, 1970. Actually, on Halloween Day, October thirty first, <laughs> October thirty first, all right, and uh, and then I was born in August nineteen seventy one, uh, and uh, we lived uh, in Mexico in Valle Hermoso, Tamaulipas, a small town in the border of uh, right here, Texas, in Bronzeville, Texas, in Matamoros, and then maybe an hour from Matamoros is Valle Hermoso. It's a small little town, you know, agriculture town. That's the way they make money there. Uh, and uh, they they plant you know cornfields and you know the uh, sorghum and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, we we were in Mexico maybe for two years, living there, and then we moved to Chicago, Illinois. And my brother, my youngest brother Aldo, was born there, and that helped us get our green card, you know, because my brother was born there in 1973 in Chicago. And then you know Chicago was too too cold for us, so we moved down to Houston, Texas. Then my sister Veronica was born here. And that's when I started boxing at the age of seven in in the garage. And then I went to, I had my first amateur fight when I was eight years old. Wow. Wow. Yes. Wow. And like I say, you know, you were a very successful amateur. Obviously, you earned a bronze medal in the amateur world games. Mm-hmm. And then also you mm-hmm. managed to box in the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona. Yes. Um, what was your highlight moment in the amateurs, Raul? Well, I mean, I had a lot of highlight moments, you know, just making the Olympic team, uh, you know, in the Olympic trials here in, in, in the United States. I had to beat a lot of good guys. I beat some good guys to make the Olympic team. I beat uh, uh, Robert Allen, you know, who who fought Bernard Hopkins twice. He was a pretty good middleweight in the pros. Robert Allen, you can look him up. I beat Lonnie Bradley, who was a WBO champion, middleweight champion from New York. And I beat uh, Antoine Echols, who also was a pretty good, decent fighter as a, as a pro you know i beat them three to make the olympic team uh but you know uh just you know i won very na- a lot of national titles i mean i won every tournament you could think of in the amateurs uh you know here in the united states and then but you know of course obviously obviously the the, the peak of it that you know has to be making the olympic team and making the 1992 olympic team was was a uh, you know it, it was it was memorable uh you know, competing in the Olympics and representing the United States was was awesome. You know, it's something that I'm never going to forget. And uh, even though I lost in the quarterfinals, you know, I had three fights. I lost in the quarterfinals to Orphan Dalibas, who went on to win a silver medal. And, I, you know, I still thought I won the fight. It was a close fight. You know, they had the new computer scoring system. I literally lost the fight in the second half of the third round. I was ahead going into the third round. And then all of a sudden it was beep, 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 beep. And I lost like... I want to say 17 to 12 or something like that. But my point is, you know, being in the Olympic team and representing the United States, 
it was it was the, the the peak, you know, the top of I mean, that's the furthest you could get. You know, of course, it would have been great if I would have won a bronze medal, a silver medal or a gold medal. And it does hurt that I didn't medal. I was very close. I lost. I won two fights, lost in the quarterfinals. And, you know, I've always I always say the story. The guy that beat me went out to the finals and got a silver medal, Orphan Delibas. And the guy that won the gold medal, Juan Lemus, I had beat three months before the Olympics at the World Challenge. And, you know, the World Challenge is a, it's, it's, it's a thing where the, the world champion fights the number one contender. And I was the number one contender. Juan Lemus was the, the world champion. And I beat him. I beat him three months before we went to the Olympics at the World Challenge. And, uh, you know, and he, three months later, he wants to go met. That's the way it went. <laughs> and yeah. obviously, you turned pro in October 1992. It took you it took you four and a half years to get a world title shot. Obviously, you compiled a record of 25 and 0 with 18 KOs mm-hmm. during that 25 mm-hmm. fight win streak. Um, you boxed the likes of. It's a strange name to bring up, I guess, but Reggie Strickland. Reggie is, you know, one of the most famous journeymen in boxing. Oh, right. He retired in right. he retired in two thousand and five with a record of sixty six wins and two hundred and seventy six losses. Right. He fought everybody. Yeah, of course. He fought everybody. Of course. But he only got stopped on twenty six occasions. You stopped him in the first round. Do you remember much about that fight, Rel? Yeah, yeah, I hit him yeah, I, I hit him uh I hit him with a good left hand and then a right hook and that was it. That was it. Actually, it was a. I fought him. You know, it's crazy. I fought him in a in a high school gym outside of Chicago, Illinois. I forgot the name of the. I believe it was in Illinois. And uh, Andrew Galata, Andrew Galata was the the main event who fought on that card, I believe. But uh, if I remember right, but that's all I remember from that fight. But I know for sure I hit him with a left hand, right hook, and that was the end of it. <laughs> And like I say, yeah, he really did go on to box everyone. Um, you also boxed Alex Rios, and you, you stopped him in one round. Obviously, after that, Rios mm-hmm. went on to box Terry Norris for the IBF and, and WBC yes. world titles. You beat Rios quicker than Norris did. Um, and also, of course, you shut out former WBC world champion Jorge Vacker on points over 10. Um, do, you, mm-hmm. do you remember much about that one? It was obviously at the MGM Grand on the undercard of Mora and Foreman. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember that fight. You know, it was uh, I really wanted to knock out Jorge Vodka, but at, at that point, I, you know, I wasn't. I, I I don't know how many fights did I have at that point. I don't remember how many fights, but I know I didn't. I wasn't a, a seasoned veteran. You know, like Vodka had been a ex world champion. He was a veteran. You know, he was on his way out. Obviously, he had fought a lot of big names. He was a world champion, but you know, he was still uh, wise. You know, he knew how to survive, and I wanted to knock him out. And you know, I learned a lot from that fight, you know, experience-wise, because I couldn't get him out of there. I went, I tried so hard to get him out of there, but, you know, maybe I was trying too hard. I was trying to land that one big punch, and and uh, that was the mistake. You know, that's the mistakes you make when you're coming up. You know, you want to kill everybody with one one shot. You want to knock them out, but, you know, it was a good experience. I won the fight unanimously, uh, and uh, it was a good win for me. It certainly was. And then, of course, let's jump forward to the big one. Like I say, April 12th, 1997, for the vacant IBF junior middleweight world title. You against Anthony Stevens at the Tropicana Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Um, talk us through that fight and obviously the feeling that came over you to become a world champion that night. Well, you know, I had signed with Todd Brank. I signed, uh, you know, I, I, I changed promoters, you know, but I, I, when I came out of the... Uh, Olympics, I signed with main events. Back then, Lou Duva was big with Evander Holyfield, Pernell Whitaker, all them guys. 
uh, Melrick Taylor. And, you know, we, we, things didn't work out. So I, I, I went with top rank and I believe I had two fights with top rank, two fights. And then uh, they, I fought for the vacant IBF title against Anthony Stevens. Anthony Stevens was, um, he was supposed to fight, I believe, uh, he fought Felix Trinidad, who gave, who gave him a really good fight. And I, I believe Anthony Stevens, no, the champion at that point, I, I believe, was Terry Norris, had the titles. But Terry Norris decided not to fight me because he, he was supposed to fight Oscar De La Hoya. But that never happened because then he lost, he loses the title. But, that you know, we'll talk about that. Uh, so I ended up fighting for the vacant title against Anthony Stevens on ABC Wild Water Sports. That same night, I fought during the day, and that same night, that's when Oscar De La Hoya fought Pernell Whitaker at the Thomas and Max Center that same day, same night. So, yeah, I mean, it was, I trained really hard for that fight. I know Anthony Stevens was a seasoned veteran. He had fought some good names, uh, fought Felix Trinidad, got stopped by Trinidad late. And uh, what I remember from that fight is, you know, I, I trained hard. I, you know, you know my style. I, I took it to him. I was aggressive. And, uh, you know, it was a good win for me. Like, I, I stopped him in nine rounds. Uh, he was, he was a very durable guy, very experienced. And, uh, it was, it was, a, it was huge for me because I, be, I became a world champion. You know, finally, that's what I had been looking for, uh, after my amateur career. And I, I got to become the IBF champion. And obviously you mentioned, you know, your father said you came out of the womb punching. He wanted to make you a champion. You became a champion. Um, was that always your dream as a kid, as well as obviously your father's for you? Absolutely. You know, uh, when I started boxing at first, when I was younger, it was a hobby. But then, you know, once I won my first national title, junior Olympic title, when I was 15, I said, man, I want to make the Olympic team one day. And then maybe after that turn pro and become a world champion. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I could I could literally say that I accomplished my dreams. You know, I was an Olympian. I was a world champion. I had some good fights. Uh, you know, I can't complain. I'm, I'm, I'm very satisfied. And also, you know, as you mentioned, Anthony Stevens, he was a tough guy. You know, you became the quickest man to stop him. And as you mentioned, you know, he boxed Felix Trinidad. He had Trinidad down in that fight as well, we forget. And, um, you know, he'd even boxed the likes of Aaron Davis and, and Livingston. Right. Of course. Now, in your first defense, you box um, Romalis Ellis. Now, Ellis, Ellis could punch, you know. Um, you became the only man to stop him at that point. You got him out in the fourth round. What do you remember about that day? Uh, that day there, I think it was the day after um, Independence Day, was it, I believe? Yeah, yeah, it was during Independence Day. Yeah, that fight was on ABC, where I was sports too here in, in the United States. And uh, I knew Romalicellas uh, was going to be tough because he won a bronze medal in the 88 Olympics. He was an 88 Olympic team member for USA, got a bronze medal, uh, and he was durable. And, uh, you know, I, I was just the bigger man, the stronger man. I took it to him. I, I felt right away that, that, you know, every point when I would hit him, uh, I would put hurt in them, you know, so it was just a matter of time. Uh, and I, you know, it took me like, I believe four rounds to get him out of there, four or five rounds. Uh, I stopped him. Uh, I dropped him. He got back up and I jumped on him and, uh, the referee stopped the fight, and that was my yeah, that was my first title defense. Yeah, and that was a brilliant win. Um, you know, your second defense took place at the Thomas and Mack Center in Las Vegas, and it, you know the whole show, the whole the whole card was stacked with a crazy bunch of names. Obviously, um, David Diaz, Butterbean, Lucia Rica, Paul Spadafora, um, Paulie Ayala, Hector Camacho, Oscar De La Hoya, and and obviously yeah. not to mention. Uh, not not to mention yourself and obviously your opponent that night, the eventual WBC world champion Keith. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. The fight ends in a split decision over twelve. Talk to me about that fight. There, tricky one. 
tough fight, tough fight. Uh, we were back and forth. They were going to change opponents on me. Uh, no, making no excuses. Anyways, I ended up fighting Keith Mullins. And we, I knew Keith Mullins from the Olympic trials. He fought in the Olympic trials. He was a good amateur. He was in the Army. Uh, Army veteran. He, he, he had a good amateur background. And I knew he was durable. The guy was tough, man. Uh, I really believe that I pulled off the fight. You know, it was gutsy. I mean, I was banged up. I was cut up. And I won a split decision. It was it was um, it was a close fight. I can't compl- I mean, I, I got to tell you, it was a close fight. But I feel that I pulled it out. I was a champion. I felt I did more in the later rounds towards the end. I felt uh, maybe uh, Keith Mullins, you know, he stepped off the gas. Uh, and I thought I took the lead. So, you know, that's why I got the decision. But it, he's he was, you know, he was a, a tough, a tough, tough, tough opponent. Yeah, and like I say, only um, less than three months later, he'd go on to knock yep. out Terry Norris. So, uh, incredible stuff. Exactly. He was, he was... On the same card, yeah. yeah. On the same card when I lost the title to Uriboy Campus. And, uh, you know, that was, you know, three months later, you know, you learn so much in boxing. You know, at that point in our life, me and my dad were new. If we knew what we knew now, uh, it would be it would have been different, you know. Like, uh, I was... I got, I received over, I want to say 70 some stitches in the Keith Mullins fight, right? And everybody knows and knows about boxing. I took that fight too early with Uri Boy Campus. I mean, three months later, I'm already in camp again and fighting a, a knockout artist in Uri Boy Campus. It was crazy, you know, but I was trying to prove myself. Uh, you know, I had pressure from the promoter, you know, that possibly if I win that fight against Uri Boy Campus, I might be able to fight Oscar, my Olympic roommate, the following year. Uh, and I was like, wow, I mean, that, that's, that, you know, that's a great opportunity. That's good. That, that'll be, that, that'll be a great payday too, you know? So, you know, we, I think the inexperience the, on the business side of it, you know, like we just, I felt like we shouldn't have took that fight with Yoruba Capital so early. We should have waited at least six months to heal right from the Keith Mullins fight. Uh, things would have been different, you know, uh, when the referee stopped the fight in the eighth or ninth round, whatever round it was. Uh, the fight was even, you know, one judge had it for me, one judge had it for him, one judge had it even, uh, but, you know, I, I just couldn't continue, man. I, my face just uh, swelled up really bad, and, you know, the the doctor told me, the, the, the plastic surgeon told me, like, you know, my face looked fine from the outside, but from the inside, it was still traumatized. That's the word he used, traumatized from the Keith Mullins fight. It wasn't healed right, and I should have waited another, I should have waited, like, six months to heal right from that fight but you know hey that's 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 boxing you know and 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 back then you know like to to us me my father it wasn't so much business i wanted to fight the best to be the best you know that was my mentality back when i was a a professional fighter i wanted to fight the best at my time you know i i I was trying to fight oscar i was trying to fight uh for now i fought fernando vargas i I tried to fight about terry norris i wanted to fight everybody because i wanted to fight the best of my era you know what i mean yeah for sure and um you know it, it, like i say it was it was it was a it was a shame the way the fight ended because as you mentioned it was super close on the cards yeah um you know you bounced back with two wins over jose flores an eventual world title challenger and michael lerma uh-huh. um you got the rounds in you beat them both unanimously over 10 and then you obviously attempt to win back your old title july 17th 1999 in nevada um tell us about that night there Raul. Well, um, 
I wanted to fight the best to be the best. And at that point, you know, Fernando Vargas was the IBF champion, young Fernando Vargas. And if I wanted to become world champion again, uh, that's who I had to be, you know. But I fought a very young. I fought. I believe I fought the best, one of the best Fernando Vargas. And he knows about it because we talk about it when we see each other uh, at different tournaments because he brings his kids to national tournaments. And I have my son that boxes and we go to national tournaments too. So we run into each other, but Fernando was like really sharp. You know, he was strong and, uh, and I wasn't successful in that fight. You know, he stopped me in 11 rounds. Uh, you know, like I said, he, he was very, uh, elusive, uh, very sharp, you know, and, uh, he, he beat me, he stopped me and, uh, you know, he, he showed, you know, what he, he why he was a champion. And, Obviously, after that fight, you're out of the ring for 19 months before returning to fight. What kept you out of the ring that long, Ro? Well, I mean, you know, every time I try to fight the best, or you know, you get that, you know, okay, I lost. Oh, I'm going to retire. Oh, I'm going to retire. So then I believe at that point, um, I I got the bug to get back in it again. So I worked myself back up to, uh, you know, fight a couple of tuna fights. And then I believe that's when I got the uh, Shane Mosley fight, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, yeah, you, you boxed Rob Bleakley. I think you stopped him in five. Then, um, uh-huh. uh, then yeah, I think you had two more fights in 2001. Um, Tony right. Murphy and Roberto Barrow. Uh, then you beat yeah. Anthony Brooks in March 2002. And then, yeah, February right. 8th, 2003. Almost a year out of the ring before the, the Shane Mosley fight came around at the Mandalay Bay. Yeah, I just had, you know, I had a couple of tune-up fights. I got the bug to get back. Let's see what could happen. I have a name. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, Oscar De La Hoya moving up to 154, and Shane Mosley moved up to 154. We fought at 154. So I believe, uh, you know, I, I think from what I remember, Oscar wanted Shane to fight somebody, a, a name or, or, or some a next world champion at 154 so they could meet each other again because Shane had already beat Oscar and uh the year before so i fought shane in february of 2002 i believe right or three three 2003 okay and uh i made the fight myself i i remember i called shane hey let's fight i'm the guy that you need to fight you know i have a mexican i have a name uh i'm tough i'm gonna get you know so uh that's how that fight happened man that's how that fight happened he's like okay yeah let's do it blah 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 Unfortunately, you, you saw the fight, how it happened. I mean, what happened, you know, we banged heads. I can't blame Shane. At that point, I blame Shane. I can't blame him or I can't blame myself. You know, lefty, righty, whatever, we banged heads. He's shorter. I believe that the fight was really going to get good. You know, if you've seen the fight on YouTube, yeah. I really believe that the fight was – we'll never know, man. I, and Shane realized, you know, I knew Shane from the amateurs. Shane never, you know, uh, wasn't an, uh, an elite amateur like I was. Uh, he was always a smaller guy, uh, but you know he he made it a lot bigger in the pros. You know uh, that's just the way it is. But uh, what can I say about that fight, man? I just I wish it wouldn't have ended that way. You know, like I, 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 I my game was to take him into the later rounds. If you see the three rounds, yeah, you know he he won. You know I knew that I was gonna lose the first couple of rounds, but if you see every time I hit Shane, you know I was just stronger, man. And he would hold me like a crab, you know. So the thing is. I wanted to take him into later rounds and see what see what was going to happen. You know, too bad we'll never know. But it was that's you know the fight ended no contest because we banged heads and that's what happened. Yeah, you banged. And then he beat Oscar, and then he beat Oscar that that same year in September of that year. Yeah, he beat Oscar. 
Yeah, but no, yeah, you banged heads a, a few times, obviously, you were cut over yes. both eyes. Um, I didn't think you lost the first couple rounds, to be honest. I gave him the first, I gave you the second, and the third was up for grabs, really. It was quite close. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I'll let you say that, man, but I know that... I know the, the, the TV people had Shane ahead the three rounds, and I, I didn't see it like that. But I'm telling you that fight was going to get good, man. That fight, and, and Shane knows it too. But that, look, it's we'll, we'll be 60 years old. I'll be 70 years old, and I'll still be talking about it. Oh, I want that rematch, you know. I wish that fight could happen again because uh, I'm telling you, it was going to get interesting. It was going to get interesting, man. My my power and my just my, you know, my size was too much for Shane. And, and you know, like, Honestly, like, I, I don't know if it's a mental thing, but I knew Shane from the amateurs. Like I said, we grew up together. We all came up together in the amateurs. You know, he, he would lose to, like, Fernando. I mean, not Fernando. Uh, Vernon Forrest. I, I believe he fought Stevie Johnson. Uh, you know, he, he won a couple of national titles, but, again, he never was a top elite amateur. You know, so and then the pros, he was blessed, and he made it big, made a lot of money, etc. But I was just too big and strong for him, and that was my mental – that was my mind – and you could see it, you know, in the third round, I was like, first round, okay. Second round, I'm like, damn, he's really not that. I mean, I I didn't feel like he was that. He's fast, but I I mean, I'm seeing his shots, you know, like I'm blocking some. I'm catching some. He's catching me too. I'm hitting him. I hit him. He grabs me. Uh, the third round, I was like, man, it, it's on. I'm probably, I was putting more pressure. And maybe that I rushed too much, and that's why we bang heads, you know. But, again, not making excuses. I mean, it, it's a no contest. Uh, Shane's a good guy, you know. We're friends. When we see each other, we, you know, we we have a lot of respect for each other. I mean, he's he's a great guy. Yeah, for sure. But no, I I agree. I believe you. I think the fight would have been very interesting if we got to see it. Yes. Now. Um, was yeah. there ever any talks of doing that fight again at any point? Nah, man. I wanted the rematch so bad, but uh, you know, business wise, why would I mean? He was the next fight. He fought Oscar and made you know five or six mil. So it just it was you know. When he fought me, he probably made like a mil, a mil and a half or something like that. So why would he take that risk? You know, why why would he take that risk? You know, there was no need to. The whole thing was that he needed to fight some guy like me to get to that rematch with Oscar again, even though he had beat Oscar. But, you know, Oscar was a star and Oscar caused a shot. So, and, you know, I, I know I know that they even had a problem. Like, I know Shane wanted a certain amount of money. And Oscar was like, no, well, you didn't look that good with Raul, so we're not going to pay you that much. We're going to pay you five or six million or something like that, which is still good at that line, at that point, you know. But I heard, I, from what I hear, I think Shane wanted more. But, hey, like I said, you know, Shane had a great career. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer. And, you know, I was blessed to be in the room with him. Absolutely. And after that, you returned back to the ring eight months later. You decided to move up to middleweight. You were back with a KO right. winning four rounds over Humberto Aranda before taking on an mm-hmm. undefeated young um, Jermaine Taylor right. in June 2004. Of course, your corner pulled you out in round nine. Um, what do you remember yep. from that night there, Earl? Uh Well, you know, the, obviously middleweight was, I mean, them guys are some big guys, man. Jermaine Taylor, I'm telling you, that that a lot of them guys, they're, they're big. It wasn't really my... It, it wasn't my weight. My weight was 154. That was my weight. I was a good, good decent-sized 154 junior middleweight. A middleweight, I, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I did it. The opportunity was there. Uh, Jermaine Taylor was young and uh, coming up. Maybe, you know, I was thinking maybe I could surprise him. But, no, it, it, didn't, ha- it didn't happen that way, man. He was just too big and too strong for me, and, uh, you know, he stopped me. And then, of course, after that, you was almost out of the ring for two years. I think twenty-two months. Um, was that a was that a period where you 
perhaps thought about walking away as you said earlier on you'd, you'd uh the same way. yes i did yes i did but then uh i saw jermaine beat bernard hopkins i'm like man i'm coming back he beat <laughs> bernard hopkins you know i'm coming back you know and i still have a name you know i, I could make some money why not it's been, you know at that point I, I was starting to look more at the business part of it too because you know as a as a as a fighter you make you know you become a champion you make money as a champion and then you know after that, you could also make money as as uh, as your name. You know, you're an ex champion, and I was like, why not? Why not? So you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, and I still, I just love the sport, man. I, uh, my, you know, I was, you know, I was in, in good shape. I kept my body in shape, mental, mental wise, mentally, I was, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still, you know, I was fine back then. I'm, I'm even, I'm fine now. You know. Um, you know, I've been around so many fighters, man, and that are retired now. And you know when they've been hit too much and they have the effects of boxing. So um, I'm like, you know, I'm going to give it another try. And I, I believe that's when I worked myself up to fight Giovanni Lorenzo for the middleweight. For the, I mean, uh, unif- I mean, uh, not unification, but uh, uh, eliminator yeah. to fight Arthur Abraham. Yeah. We'll get to uh-huh. that in just a sec. You returned um, with 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 a good win streak, a five fight win streak, all by knockout, yeah. including a win over former world title challenger Jonathan Corn. You stopped him in a round um, before mm-hmm. boxing former world champion Bronco McCart, a majority draw. Um, did you feel you did enough to win that night? I think you did. Uh, that wasn't a draw, man. Let me tell you what happened. When I when the I don't know if you saw that fight. I've seen, I've seen you know, it. it. I, I beat him, I, and Bronco. We always talk about it, but you know, I fought Bronco in his home state, Michigan. His dad was something with the commission, okay. And I fought him not too far from his town where he's from, okay, up there in uh, northern Michigan, right. So when I fought him there, I forgot the name of the casino, whatever. But I fought him there. I won that fight. The, I the, I got the decision that day. I got the decision. You know, that night I got the decision. I won. Because I did win the fight. I felt I won unanimously. I mean, a lot of people that see it, I mean, they're like, oh, you won that fight unanimously. There's no way you lost. I want to say like a week later, two weeks later, I don't know. They come up with some bull crap. I have no idea that they made it. Uh, the judges made a, 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 what do you call it, a mistake with the scoring, blah, blah, blah. That It was a draw. And they changed it to a draw. This happened like, I'm talking about like a week or maybe two weeks after I had already won the fight. You know, but at that point, it was too late because I, they had already made, we had already made the fight, you know, like with uh, that promoter that I was with at that point, Leon Margulies from Warriors Boxing, we, they, where they had already made a deal with uh, main events for me to fight Giovanni Lorenzo, number one, number two, fight each other. And, you know, the winner gets to fight Arthur Abraham. But yeah, I mean, that fight with Bronco McCart, I, I won that fight, man. I mean, everybody's just, I, it's, it's crazy how, you know, hey. Stuff happens in boxing, you know. That's all I can say. Politics, <laughs> we call it politics. Yes, <laughs> yes. But, um... Politics. Oh, I like that one. Politics. Yeah. Hey, I never heard that one. I'm gonna use that one. That one's for you. <laughs> politics. I'm gonna use that one on Showtime, man. Okay. Politics. I'll be listening for that. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, you boxed twice more after that. Obviously, you mentioned the the IBF um, middleweight title eliminator against 26 and 0 Giovanni Lorenzo in Florida. That one took place. Um, June 21st of 2008, and then finally your last ever fight, November 8th, 2008, for the IBF middleweight title against the then undefeated and reigning champion Arthur Abraham. You had to travel to Germany for the fight. Um, tell us about that experience. Well, you know, when I fought Giovanni Lorenzo, 
it was on Showtime. Okay, and the main event was uh, Arthur Abraham against Edison Miranda. Mm. So I, I wasn't supposed to beat Giovanni Lorenzo, man. I wasn't supposed to beat, I, I, you know, he was the knockout artist, undefeated, out of New York, you know, Dominican, but by way of New York. And I wasn't supposed to beat him. Uh, anyways, I, I, I stunned, I, I, you know, I, I surprised, you know, I was the veteran. I surprised the, the young, the young uh, prospect coming up, whatever. Um, and I earned that fight to fight Arthur Abraham. I got ready for Arthur Abraham. Uh, the fight, the first time that we were supposed to fight, I don't have the dates and stuff, but when we were supposed to fight, the fight didn't happen. The, the day of the weigh-in, no, the day of the weigh-in, everything was fine. The next day, I remember Liam Margulis coming into my room. He said, he's not going to fight. Fights off. And I'm like, what? They called the fight off because uh, Arthur Abraham supposedly was sick with the flu or something. He didn't feel good. He went to the doctor and he wasn't feeling it. He was sick. So we had to regroup, come back to the United States for another, I believe, another month train and then go back to Germany and fight again. I'm not making any excuses. I mean, anyways, uh, Arthur Abraham was, I mean, he was just too strong. He was a big guy, too strong. I believe, no, I don't believe. I know I, I fractured his ribs, you know, with my body shots. I hit him because he came late to the, uh, to the uh, what do you call it, the press conference after the fight. And I fractured his ribs. Had I known that, maybe I would have went an extra round, you know. But, yeah, I mean, he... He, he, he beat me just about every round. He was too strong for me. He was too strong for me. Uh, my dad stopped the fight after the sixth round. He said, that's it. No mas. I'm 37 years old. You know, I have a family. I have kids. No reason to take any more punishment. And that was the end of my career. Did that make, um, at that stage, did that make retiring an easy option for you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I, I worked myself again. I beat a young guy like Giovanni Lorenzo, and I worked myself to fight for the middleweight title, which is really not my weight, and I wasn't my strong weight. And I fought one of the best because Arthur Abraham was a—he was a beast. I mean, look what he did, Jermaine Taylor. Look, look what he did to a lot of people, knocked them out, you know, in in, in dramatic fashion. And uh, I was—I was content. I said, "There's no way." I mean, I'm done. I'm 37 years old. There's no reason for me to continue and get hurt. Was was there ever really a point in your career, Rail, where you you felt like you was on the slide? And if so, what what point of your career would that have been? I'm gonna be honest with you, like you're talking about flat, like I just didn't have it anymore. I, I never like you know, they call it like you can't pull the trigger and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I can't really say I just I felt like that. I mean, I I I'd stay in the gym, you know, I, I fluctuate in weight, but right now I've been running, I've been hitting the heavy bag. I spar with my 19-year-old. We go to the body. You know, I'm 49 years I'm about to be 49 in August. I feel good. I can never say that, you know, oh, I've taken too much punishment or, you know, I, you know, I, uh, I can't pull the trigger. I, I could never say I was, I've, I've been flat, you know, like, I mean, I, I just thought it was, you know, at that point, you know, I'm 37 years old. I thought it was the right thing to do. That's it. I don't need to continue no more. And obviously, later this year, it'll be 12 years since you retired. At any point in that time, have you ever had the itch to want to come back or no? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, I never had the itch to come back. I, I have a, I have a, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to have a, a good job. You know what I do? I'm uh, with Showtime. 
I, I'm around, you know, all, I cover a lot of the big fights. I, you know, cover, do the series Showbox too, you know, up and coming prospects. Um, I'm in, you know, I'm in the limelight. I'm in, I'm, I'm with all the, the, you know, the big fights that I've covered, you know, Floyd Mayweather, Conor McGregor, all the all the fighters nowadays, Keith Thurman, uh, Danny Garcia, I'm there. So uh, I'm, I'm blessed to have a good broadcasting career. And I want to ask you about your career. Um, again, this is kind of a, uh, I guess a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a looking back kind of... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Completely evaded me. Um, yeah, like a looking back type of question. Hindsight question. That's the word I was looking okay. for. Okay, um, okay. If you could go back and change anything, have you got any regrets at all You know, for your career? Would you go back and change something? If so, what would that be? Well, I mean, you know, I can't say I have any regrets. You know, it wouldn't be right. But, you know, like when you're coming up in the professional ranks, you know, you get in, you, you, you're inexperienced. You know, like, like I said, if I knew what I know now, Perhaps I wouldn't have taken that Uruboy campus fight after the Keith Mullins fight after I got banged up, you know, cut up really bad. I wouldn't have taken it that soon. Another thing is maybe I would have milked, you know, like what fighters do nowadays. I would have treated it more like business, my title, my world title. Maybe I would have milked, you know, like, you know what I mean by milking it, right? Of course. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I would have fought different guys and then just waited to fight maybe Oscar De La Hoya hit the jackpot and would fight for the million dollar, you know, for the five, ten million dollar payday. You know what I mean? Maybe I would have fought smarter guys. You know, a lot of fighters they fight smarter guys. A lot of champions, they fought smarter guys coming up, you know. Uh you know, that's the only thing that, you know, the business side of it, we were so inexperienced, me and my father, and you know, uh, you know, that's just the way it went, man. Uh uh that's all I can tell you. The business side of it, maybe we would have made some different decisions, you know. Uh, but besides that, you know, like I said, I had a great amateur career. You know, I still become a world champion. I made some good paydays. I have my health. I have my family. Uh, what else can I ask for, man? I'm blessed. And if you could go back, if you could have gone back, was there anyone that you wished you'd have had the chance to fight but didn't get to fight? I'm guessing it's probably Oscar. <laughs> yeah. I would have, I would have loved to fight Oscar, man. He was my Olympic roommate, and I like, yeah, I would have loved to fight him. Um, you know, he he gave a lot of guys an opportunity, you know, smaller guys, smaller guys, to uh, make some money and you know have a payday. But you know, for me, it wasn't even about that. It would have been a great story, a great promotion. You know, I mean, even me and Richard Schaefer talked about it. You know, he's the one that you know he would always say, oh man. 1992 they were roommates now they meet in the ring you know he had the promotion and stuff but it never happened they never happened so yeah i would have liked to fight someone like him and uh because he was you know you know he moved up in weight and he was one you know he was a star he was one of the best of uh, my era and uh you know that's why fernando vargas wanted to fight him um that's why a lot of people wanted to fight him why not you know it's it's business but it's at the same time uh, you know, you want to fight the best to be the best, and that was my mentality. And who was, who would you say was the best fighter you ever boxed in your pro career, and who also was the biggest puncher? Biggest puncher has to be uh, uh, Arthur Abraham. Yeah, he is the biggest puncher. Okay, the best from what that I fought is uh, what uh, is Fernando Vargas. Yeah, yeah, good answers there. And, yes. Um, 
Yeah, and just what, what are you up to now, obviously, aside from being a part of the, the Showtime boxing team? You mentioned your son. He's, he's a successful amateur, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, yeah, just tell us a bit about what you're up to, you know, outside of broadcasting, Raul. Well, you know, besides the broadcast, and I'm looking forward to getting back to it, you know, hopefully in July, that's what they're talking about with Showtime. Instead, we've been having them Zoom meetings with uh, Spinoza and all the, the talent, and they're talking about coming back in July. Not sure what fight, but, you know, I'm looking forward to getting back and doing my job, you know, because I've, I've been with the Showtime family now for nine, nine years, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm blessed, uh, you know, and I'm happy that even when I was fighting, you know, I would always, I would do broadcasts, and I've been doing broadcasting since, I want to say 1996, you know, uh, Spanish, English. I worked with everybody, Al Bernstein doing international calls. I worked with Rich Murata, Barry Tompkins, Steve Farhood, uh, Kurt Menefee, Bob Papa. I mean, I worked with all kinds of guys in English. I've done Spanish. Uh, so, you know, by the time I got to Showtime, I had a lot of experience, you know, and, and I'm glad that I've been with them. But, you know, besides that, I, I want to, you know, I, I own a boxing fitness gym. I own a boxing fitness gym, you know, just people that do it for fitness, stay in shape, want to be in shape, kids, women, men of all ages. Uh, you know, I spend time with my wife and I got two little ones now. You know, I got remarried. Uh, uh, my um, my son, Liam, he's going to be three years old. And my daughter, Alina, she's uh, a year and four months. And then, of course, you know, through a past marriage, I you know, have my oldest son, Raul. He tried boxing, you know, he's 27 years old, but, you know, it just, it wasn't for him. Arturo, who's um, 23 years old, uh, he he went pro, man. He went up to 10-0. and 0. We had him, he had signed with top rank. And, uh, you know, an opponent poked his eye. You know, he poked his eye and he developed a, 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 something called a, a corneal abrasion. It, it never corneal abrasion not detached retina but it's corneal abrasion never healed right so so it never healed right so we just you know we we took him out of box and it wasn't it wasn't worth the risk you know i mean it's not like he's a kid that's starving and you know he needs to box or something like that but you know he's doing good and then so my 19 year old giovanni he's a pretty good amateur i want to say he's easily in the top five in the united states top three maybe uh he had won the Golden Gloves here uh, before the, the coronavirus stuff. And we were going to go to the state. We are going to try to win the Nationals. Um, and we, we haven't, you know, I heard in December we have the Nationals too again. But, you know, he be, you know, be on the lookout for him. He's a, his name, you know, I think he's, my son's pretty good, man. Giovanni Marquez is a good amateur. Uh, we, we try to make the last Olympic team, but we, we lost to the guy that made the Olympic team, uh, Tiger Johnson. Really good fighter, a lot of experience. My son lost to him. My son's 19. Tiger's like 22, 23. A lot of international experience. And, you know, his experience took over. But actually, one just thought we won the fight. But we, we didn't win the fight. But my son was competitive in that fight against Tiger Johnson. And that's who's representing the United States at 152 for the Olympics in uh, in Tokyo, if, if they do happen. or I don't know what the deal is with that. But, you know, yeah, my son Giovanni, uh, my dad trains him. I help him out when I can, you know, because I'm busy with my gym and I travel. Uh, but that's pretty much what I do, man. That's all I do. Oh, that's excellent, man. It's excellent. I love hearing about about what everyone's up to. Um, and just really the final the final question for you, Rel. I'm going to put you on the spot a tiny bit here, but we okay. ask this to everyone that we speak to from overseas. Um, okay. People like to hear this one. Who is your favorite 
UK fighter. It can be from any era. Who springs to mind? Favorite UK fighter? <laughs> oh man! Well, you you gotta you gotta remember my style. You gotta remember my style. I came to fight. So who do you think? I mean, you, you got names right now. Can you think of somebody that remember my style? And this guy. Oh, and and he and this guy loves to drink beer. He used to love to drink. <laughs> So, <laughs> still loves to drink, don't worry. And he still, oh, he still loves to drink beer. Yeah, you're right. So you, you, you got to know who that is, man. Ricky Hatton. Ricky, yeah, of course. Ricky Hatton, yes, sir. Ricky Hatton, man. Uh, you know, good fighter. Uh, had a lot of balls. You know, he came to fight. He came to fight. Yeah. And uh, he's, yeah, I, I would, I would pick him as one of my favorite fighters. And and uh, and he drew big too, man. Yeah, he, he was a big name. He was a big name. Yeah, he really was. He really was um, very popular answer. And just finally, Rail, if you've got any closing message just to our listeners before we let you go, if you want to sign out with a nice message, you're free to do so. Obviously, you don't always get to speak to your supporters from over here in the UK. Well, I mean, you know, um, I, well, I do want to say that I, I've never had the opportunity to go cover a fight in the UK. And, you know, hopefully one day that'll happen. I'm sure I got a lot of uh, fans over there too, you know, and I uh Sometimes it's surprising, you know, when you go to different countries, how fans treat you. You know, I'm usually surprised, you know, like I go to, you know, well, you know, when I've been to Puerto Rico, but I've been to Mexico, you know, but I've never been to the UK. And uh, it would be nice to to cover a fight over there. And, you know, all I, all I can say is that, um, um, you know, I love boxing. You know, uh, boxing is a great sport. It done a lot for me. And uh, I hope people keep following uh, the sport, you know, after this pandemic, you know, uh, we should get back in in the groove in July and watch Showtime Boxing uh, and just support boxing, man. Support all the boxing uh, fighters all over the world, you know, all over the world. Absolutely. Well said. Listen, Rail, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you this week, my friend. Thank you so much for your time and hopefully we can speak again in the future. Yes, sir, man. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and this wraps up episode 241 of the Box Hard Podcast. I've been your host, Joey Coastman. Eddie Chambers has been with me for the duration of the show. A massive thank you to our sole guest on this week's podcast, the former IBF junior middleweight world champion, Raul Marquez. The only other piece of news really to mention is that Charlie Edwards has left Matchroom. He's now signed a promotional contract with Frank Warren. So all the best to Charlie with that move there. Uh, But that's about everything. Remember to tell a friend to tell a friend about the podcast thank you all for listening once again of course enjoy your weekends people and we shall see you all again next week